Today, we are talking about the U.S. war machine. When he became president of the United States, Ronald Reagan said he was going to get rid of the U.S. welfare state. Well, it wasn't a welfare state. It wasn't a welfare state then. It's not a welfare state now. The U.S. is, in fact, a warfare state. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we are talking with investigative journalist Ben Norton. He is with the website multipolarista.com. He has written a recent article on U.S. military interventions all around the world starting in 1798. Ben Norton, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's one of my favorite shows. It's always a real pleasure being here. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great honor for us to have you. Ben, I want to start. This is an incredible article that you have written, and it's on your website, multipolarista.com. The headline is very straightforward. U.S. launched 251 military interventions, not since 1798, but since 1991, and 469 since 1798. Now, many people hearing these numbers will say, wait a second, the socialist program or Ben Norton, somebody here is making these numbers up. But the numbers don't come from you. They don't come from Multipolarista. They don't come from the socialist program. They don't come from Breakthrough News. These numbers about U.S. military intervention come from the U.S. government. Yeah, absolutely. They come from the Congressional Research Office, which is the research arm of the Congress. So they're effectively U.S. government employees. And every year they update actually a list of what they call the instances of use of United States armed forces abroad. And in March of this year, they did the most recent update. And if you look, especially what interested me is the number of, of interventions since 1991, the end of the first Cold War, we see 251 listings. Now, those are only the listings that are officially acknowledged by the Congressional Research Service. And this does not include covert operations by military services and intelligence agencies that are not publicly disclosed. It does not include the US government's involvement in regime change operations, in coups. We're only talking about the publicly acknowledged official military deployment of U.S. forces abroad. So, for instance, we know, thanks to reporting by people like Nick Terse, that the U.S. has special operations forces in dozens of countries around the world, including half of the African continent. We know that the U.S. has been involved in organizing coups and, you know, covert operations around the world. If we were to add those, I mean, of course, people like William Bloom in his book, Killing Hope, tried to take a journalistic stab at documenting that. I mean, we're talking about hundreds more. So I need to emphasize that this actually is a conservative estimate. And even this conservative estimate shows a really important fact to keep in mind, that 
after the end of the first Cold War, when the, the United States, which was leading the capitalist bloc in this global class war between socialism and capitalism, after the US empire was able to overthrow the Soviet-led socialist bloc, the number of interventions abroad increased significantly. It did not decrease. So the very concept that the United States had that it was supposedly intervening abroad to defend democracy and human rights against the so-called communist threat. Well, the so-called communist threat no longer existed after 1991 and the number of interventions increased. So clearly that pretense was completely false from the beginning. Very important. Again, in modern times, Ben, when powers, governments go to war, they have to assign a noble cause to the war effort. It's not like the good old days when you could just go to war and the population were subject people. They were the subjects of the kings and queens. They were not the citizens. They didn't have rights. Public opinion didn't mean very much, say, in 17th century Europe. Maybe it meant something, but certainly today in the modern era, public opinion does matter. The people have the capacity to make revolution. They have the capacity as they did during the Vietnam War to, through their uprising against the war, become a material factor in the military calculations. I mean, I'm thinking about Vietnam, for instance. Richard Nixon said he had a special way of ending the war when he was elected in 1968, and he threatened nuclear annihilation to the Vietnamese negotiators and the Vietnamese didn't blink, not only because they were confident in themselves, not only because they were confident on the battlefield or their forces on the battlefield in Vietnam, but because they knew that people in the United States would never, ever accept a nuclear attack against Vietnam, that in fact, there would have been a revolution in the United States. I mean, the people in the United States did know about Agent Orange, they did know about napalm, they were growing more and more intensely anti-war. The Vietnamese knew the United States was bluffing because of public opinion. So when we think about all of these military interventions in the modern era, they have to go for a good cause. They have to be done in a way to convince public opinion of their righteousness. And right now, the U.S. is funneling billions of weapons to Ukraine in, in a proxy war that the U.S. is waging with Russia in Ukraine. That has its own public rationale. So did the Vietnam War, the Korean War. But before 1991, it was always to defend democracy against communism. So that pretext went away. That's what you're saying with the collapse of the socialist camp. But the wars didn't go away. They just got new public rationales. Well, and the number of those wars increased. So, of course, we all know that even the term Cold War is misleading in many ways. You've pointed this out, Brian, that for the people of Korea and Vietnam and Congo and so many countries in the global south, the Cold War was not cold. It was very hot. There are proxy wars, certainly the people of Afghanistan in the 1980s, another proxy war that's kind of similar to the proxy war we see in Ukraine today. This new Cold War, the second Cold War, it's certainly hot for the people of Ukraine. A lot of Ukrainians are dying and they're being conscripted to go fight and die. It's very tragic. And yet we see Western governments refuse to go to the negotiating table because they have these maximalist demands. They can't give an inch. So we see that for people who are not in these global superpowers, the global superpowers treat people in other countries as you know collateral damage. And this is still the kind of attitude mentality we see from 
you know, top U.S. government officials, for instance, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary who, until he became defense secretary, let's not forget, was on the board of directors of Raytheon, the weapons corporation. He said the U.S. goal is to weaken Russia. We saw, for instance, Hal Brands, who is a neoconservative columnist and the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins University. He wrote an article in Bloomberg and the Washington Post in which he said that, yeah, NATO is waging a proxy war on Russia and we're fighting to the last Ukrainian. He said that pretty clearly. So we see this very flippant, imperial, arrogant attitude from some of these Western government officials. Hal Brands is a former Pentagon official. And, you know, sometimes we see people like Blinken will try to use more, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will try to use more appealing PR rhetoric that makes it sound like they're doing this for democracy and human rights. But it's unfortunately, this is this is the reality of imperialism. And we can see this thoroughly documented by the fact that the U.S. government has carried out 251 military interventions abroad, at least in a conservative estimate since 1991. And of course, we all know that the U.S. government's modus operandi, and this is the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was leaked in, in the 1990s. It's full spectrum dominance. The Pentagon decided after overthrowing the socialist bloc that it could have a, a global spanning empire and that it could control pretty much every region of the world. And not just because it wants power. Imperialists don't just expand because they want power. They do it for economic reasons. U.S. corporations are the beneficiaries, not workers in the United States. It's Wall Street. They've made billions and trillions of dollars in this global spanning empire, extracting resources from the global south, super exploitation of cheap labor in the global south. We see these protests going on in Haiti, a country where we know that the U.S. government was actively lobbying to reduce the minimum wage. That's why the U.S. wants this global spanning empire to continue imposing these neoliberal economic policies around the world to extract wealth, to drain wealth away. And any countries that try to pursue a path of economic independent development, especially state-led economic development, is destroyed. You know, Ben, I think either in your article, and again, the article is entitled U.S. Launched 251 Military Interventions Since 1991, and 469 since 1798. And people can get this at your website, multipolarista.com. It's either in that article or a YouTube video that you made about the article. You mentioned that in 2007, The Economist, the British magazine, very establishment magazine, said that the United States spent more on military spending, that's in 2007, than all the other countries in the world combined. Now, that's not the case now. That's not the case now. We want to talk about that and what's changed. But when you look at U.S. military spending compared, say, to China, I believe it's about five times greater each year, five times greater than China. When you look at what the Russians spend on military, it's less than 10% of what the U.S. spends every year on war. The U.S. is making a great big noise right now about the threat posed by North Korea because North Korea just launched a missile that went over Japan. The North Korean military budget is for about $4 billion a year. The U.S. military budget is about almost $900 billion officially than when you add the other places where military spending takes place, but it's not in the Department of Defense budget. That number is really about a trillion. The North Korean military budget is $4 billion 
which is the size of the New York City Police Department budget. So when you just look at the issues of military spending, it says so much about this characterization that we're using that we are in a warfare state. I mean, it really is a state premised on war. It's an empire, a global empire, different, say, than the British Empire, the French Empire, or the Spanish or Portuguese empires, which were based on you know, out-and-out colonies in different parts of what we now call the Third World. But it's an empire premised on military might and the extension of American military power everywhere and on this unbelievable capacity to spend what appears to be limitless funds on military hardware. That's absolutely right. And you all at Breakthrough News published a, a very good speech by you know mutual friend Vijay Prashad, who pointed out a fact that I hadn't actually thought about enough. The entire United Nations budget is around $3 billion. So that's to say that like all the countries in the world, the 193 member states together combined, fund the United Nations to support peace, ostensibly, for $3 billion per year. The United States alone spends nearly $1 trillion on the books for war. This is not for peace. This is for war. So that really shows the, the striking double standard there and the lack of priority. I mean, it's, it's really it's disturbing, and, and especially considering the bipartisan U.S. government attacks on the United Nations as an institution, especially under Republicans, but even under Democrats, the attempt by the U.S. government to replace the international law-based order centered on the U.N. with the so-called rules-based international order in which Washington makes the rules and orders everyone around. It shows this, again, this very arrogant imperial attitude in which the U.S. ruling class truly sees the entire world as the kind of imperial property of the U.S., or a term that's becoming used now, the global Monroe Doctrine. Next year is the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. Well, that's the doctrine, that the colonial doctrine in which the United States declared Latin America to basically be its colonial backyard, or Joe Biden re recently referred to Latin America as the U.S. front yard. Uh, I mean, it shows that regardless, you know, the U.S. president sees Latin America as the proverbial yard of the United States, but now we see a kind of global Monroe Doctrine Every country is part of the U.S. backyard. The Pacific region on the other side of the planet, the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, it's all the U.S. backyard. But, you know, there's another really important point I want to get at here, which is about the military industrial complex. And Brian, you hit the nail on the head. We can't underestimate how important the war machine is for capitalism in the United States, for the economy to continue functioning as it is. And I've been doing a, a series of interviews with a friend of mine who's a brilliant historian named Aaron Good, who has a book called American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, which is, he's a, a scholar, he's a PhD, and he's a political scientist, and he's he wrote a history of the U.S. empire and his concept of the deep state, which is related to running the U.S. empire, this undemocratic apparatus. I know you, Brian, have said we should just call that the state, but the point is that there's this undemocratic apparatus of imperial bureaucrats in the Pentagon and the CIA and these other institutions that run a global spanning empire that was created after World War II. And the point that he repeatedly makes in his book, you know, he's a historical materialist, he understands the economic reasons. He constantly points out that at every single stage of the creation of this US empire, the infrastructure we're talking about today, from the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 to the National Security Act in 1947 that created the CIA and the NSA and the National Security Council, to the National Security Council's infamous document, NSC 68, 
1950, which outlined the U.S. strategy for the first Cold War. Aaron, this historian Aaron Good points out in his book that at every single stage, you can find the people involved were Wall Street lawyers. They were capitalist millionaire oligarchs, and they were specifically lawyers working for Wall Street. Alan Dulles, the founder of the CIA, was a Wall Street lawyer. His brother, John Foster Dulles, who became Secretary of State, was a Wall Street lawyer. They worked at one of the most powerful, influential law firms that was working for Wall Street. So it's not hyperbolic to say that the U.S. empire itself was created by Wall Street as a way of expanding its capitalist and financial power around the world. And this entire apparatus of the military industrial complex is strictly about making money, extracting wealth and making money for capitalist oligarchs who own all these companies and invest in these big military contractors. So when we're talking about a trillion dollar budget, we should keep in mind that over half of that discretionary budget goes to for-profit corporations for contractors. We're talking about trillions of dollars every decade being given to private for-profit corporations in the United States. So not only are we talking about massive destruction around the world and chaos and exploitation and violence and death, we're also talking about a scam, a global scam in which it's the biggest pillaging of the public coffers ever in history, where every single year, hundreds of billions of dollars go into the, the pockets of private capitalists. And of course, in the process, they're risking peace and the ability of life to continue living on this planet. They're actually destroying the planet environmentally, and they're also risking nuclear war as we speak. Indeed, indeed, very, very important points. If the U.S. government said to the people of the United States, look, we're going to go to war in Iraq because it has a lot of oil and we want to be able to exploit the natural resources of the country and we want to take over this territory and we want to be able to use it for corporations and the super profits of American corporations, nobody would send their son or daughter to go and fight for that war. You're not going to go fight for a war for the exploitation of other people's resources. So you have to say, look, we're, we're sending these soldiers, these troops to the war to defend you from Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. We're sending the weapons and the military to fight in Afghanistan because we're protecting you against future terror attacks like September 11th. In Vietnam, we're sending, you know, tens of thousands of young Americans to their death, not to mention the millions of Vietnamese, not because we want to dominate Southeast Asia, and exploit it or super exploit it. We're doing it to, to save democracy and, and stop communism. I mean, it's always designed in a way to, to lie to the people because if you actually told the truth about what the wars were for, the whole country and the population would rise up against them, including those inside the armed forces, including those who are in uniform. So this public relations campaign is designed to keep the people sort of in a stultified sense, sort of politically asleep. And then when you think about the actual history of modern wars, since we're talking about how military interventions have increased after World War II and then again after 1991, when you think about the economic element of this, Ben, which is what you're getting at, and I think it's not simply the benefit of the greedy capitalists who own these corporations, but it's about maintaining the stability of the capitalist system itself. In the 1930s, there was a global economic depression. It looked like capitalism was basically finished. 
There was the problem of overproduction. Capitalism was producing more than could be sold at a profit. But by going to war and by military spending, it brought these depressed economies back to life because now they were producing bombs and missiles and tanks. And then the war destroyed all the existing means of production in Europe, for instance, or in Japan. All the factories were destroyed. The cities were destroyed. So then they had to be rebuilt. And so the U.S. was able to use the destruction of the violence in World War II to start the rebuilding. So you can see capitalism itself is in a way connected to, organically connected to militarism. This is modern day capitalism. And then just one more important historical caveat before I throw it back to you and get your thoughts. After World War II, the country was starting to go back into depression. There was another economic recession that was beginning in 1947. After the U.S. demobilized this massive military machine that it used to fight its adversaries in World War II, but then the Korean War started in June 1950, and the U.S. remobilized the military, and it's never been demobilized since. That was when we had a permanent warfare state. It was starting in 1950. We call it the military-industrial complex. That was the name that Eisenhower gave it. But the reality is it was a stimulant, an economic stimulant, sort of a welfare program designed by the federal government for the capitalists, but they gave it the, the imprimatur of security, of defense, of keeping the country safe, rather than what it really is, is a plundering of the national treasury for the benefit of the same tiny capitalist class and their system, which can't exist, in fact, in the modern era without military spending and without militarism. That's exactly right. This is another huge element of this in the military industrial complex, which is that when this system emerges after the end of World War II, the United States really became the global protector of capitalism. You're absolutely right, Brian. We should stress this point that capitalism was on the verge of crisis and on the verge of collapse. It was in crisis. And there were socialist movements, you know, taking power throughout the world, not just in the Soviet Union, but especially across the global south. Of course, pretty much every national liberation struggle against European colonialism was led by socialists, some kind of left-wing force. You know, of course, we saw what happened to Sukarno in Indonesia, who was one of the conveners of the non-aligned movement. Of course, we saw something similar with Nkrumah, with the coup in Ghana, Egypt with Nasser, in Congo with Patrice Lumumba. All of these leaders who were socialist-oriented, left-leaning, they were overthrown in coups or assassinated. Of course, we saw the over 600 assassination attempts against Fidel Castro in Cuba. I still believe that out of all people in human history, there were more assassination attempts against Fidel Castro than anyone else, more than, more than against Hitler, more than the most brutal genocidal fascist dictators. Nope, the US tried to kill, just the US tried to kill Fidel Castro at least 638 times, according to the documents that we have. So this is a, a brutal war to defeat socialism everywhere. And the U.S. ruling class took it upon itself to protect capitalism. And of course, they made they were making money off of it. It, was, it wasn't simply out of benevolence. It was to keep the system going because they profited from the system. And still today, I mean, in this new Cold War, the second Cold War that we're talking about, it's not exactly the same, of course. Russia is not the Soviet Union. And the Russian leadership certainly has, you know, Putin has made anti-communist comments. But China is still a socialist government governed by a socialist party. 
Also, if we look at the economic model pursued by the United States, which is a thoroughly neoliberal model that even is actually significantly more right wing and brutally exploitative than even the capitalist model in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, which was the Keynesian era, or in the neoliberal era, where there are very few controls on capital in the United States and parts of Western Europe. And the US continues to try to impose that neoliberal model across the planet using not only military force, of course, we saw that in Iraq. We can never forget that when the US was trying to overthrow all of these countries with independent governments, many of which had been allied with the Soviet Union and had kind of state-led economic models, if not socialist, like we saw, for instance, in Yugoslavia or Libya, at least a kind of resource nationalist model, like we saw, for instance, in Iraq. The US tried to overthrow all of these governments that had independent economic models and then replace them with Chicago boy style Pinochet neoliberal models. This is exactly what happened in Iraq after the 2003 invasion. We saw interns from the American Enterprise Institute were parachuted in to the green zone and basically they were trained, these interns were trained on how to privatize the Iraqi economy and sell off all the state assets. This is what the US capitalist class would like to do to every country on earth, including Russia, which despite the fact that Russia doesn't have a socialist economy, economic model anymore, it does have significant state control over the strategic natural resources like oil and gas and some minerals, and certainly China. China has the four largest banks on earth and they're all state-owned banks. China has public ownership of all land China has still significant ownership of the commanding heights of the economy. So although the new Cold War is not exactly the same as the first Cold War, there still is a class war element. And that is a war led by Wall Street and the capitalist class against any economic alternative to neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. Each and every one of the U.S. wars is, in fact, a rich man's war. I mean, this is really important for people, especially working class folks, and young people who are going to be the, the human material for the next war, whatever it is, to realize that this is the rich man's war. This is the war for capitalism. In that sense, it's always a class war, even if the target isn't a communist or a socialist government. The goals of the war are capitalist goals. This is a capitalist war drive. It's a perennial war drive. And now the U.S. is preparing for global major power conflict, as they call it, ever since the 2018 Pentagon Quadrennial Report, which means to get ready for war with China. Does that seem crazy to you? Well, yes, because it is crazy. But so is the U.S. war drive. It's not really just policy mistake, policy mistake, and policy mistake. This is a system. The system of imperialism in the modern era, led by U.S. capitalism, is in fact addicted to a nonstop U.S. war drive. And with that, Ben, I want to turn to an article that appeared today in the New York Times. It's an amazing headline. It's about Taiwan. And the article basically says, well, I'll read the headline to you. It says, U.S. aims to turn Taiwan into giant weapon depot. Okay, everybody, U.S. aims to turn Taiwan into giant weapons depot. You know what I love about this headline is it's honest. It's one of those rare moments where whoever wrote the headline will probably be fired or laid off later today. Official says Taiwan needs to become a, quote, porcupine 
with enough weapons to hold off if the Chinese military blockades and invades it. Now, Ben, the United States government's official policy since 1972 is that Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan is part of China. The Shanghai communique signed by the Nixon administration with Mao and Zhou Enlai and reaffirmed in 1979 when Deng Xiaoping came and met with Jimmy Carter and reaffirmed again in the 1980s. And three different communiques, the United States says, Taiwan is part of China. We acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China. And now we see from the New York Times, the U.S. aims to turn Taiwan into a giant weapons depot. Well, one is that that obviously violates the Shanghai communique and the acknowledgement that Taiwan is part of China. I mean, can you imagine, for instance, if, if Hawaii, which is much further from the mainland of the United States than Taiwan is from China, if the Chinese were pumping billions of dollars and making Hawaii a weapons depot, as the New York Times calls it, against the rest of the United States? I mean, this would be the, this would start World War III. And yet there's kind of this cavalier treatment about what the U.S. is actually doing, turning Taiwan into a weapons depot. Now, just for the people who may be hearing this show for the first time, China was a dismembered country by Western colonialism. The Chinese call it the century of humiliation. Taiwan was stolen from China by Japanese imperialism in 1895. So a big part of the Chinese revolution, in addition to socialism, in addition to overcoming underdevelopment and poverty, et cetera, et cetera, it's also reuniting the dismembered parts of China. So for the U.S. to take a part of China, which it recognizes as part of China, Taiwan, and make it into a U.S. Pentagon weapons depot means that the U.S. is not only reckless and not only provocative, but is actually preparing for war with China on the issue of Taiwan. And the American sort of thinking here is, it will be like Ukraine. We can fight China the way we're fighting Russia. We can have other people do the bleeding. We can have other people do the dying. Then it won't be a political liability at home. As George W. Bush said after September 11th, when he told the American people, just keep shopping, just keep shopping. That's what your job is, to keep shopping. And in the meantime, we'll let everybody else do all the bleeding. Anyway, this is a dangerous moment when you look at the fact that China and Russia have stood up, they're on their feet, they're major powers, they're not going to be treated as colonies. Whatever one thinks of Vladimir Putin's politics, and I'm certainly not a political follower of Vladimir Putin at all, but he's basically making the same argument that the Chinese are, which is, we're not going to be your colony. We're not going to let that happen, and we're strong enough so that you can't do it to us. Anyway, that's what makes this a dangerous moment. That's absolutely right, Brian. And the reality is that the U.S. government is preparing for war with China, conventional war. The U.S. has been waging a hybrid war on China for several years, a trade war through sanctions and tariffs and all these different policies. It's certainly been waging an information war with ridiculous politically motivated accusations I'm not even going to say what they are. I mean, we all know the ridiculous hyperbolic accusations made against China. And of course, another part of hybrid war is we see that the U.S. is now preparing for military war, conventional war over Taiwan. And the fact that the media so casually refers to this island with over 20 million people as a weapons depot, I think it really gives lie to this marketing strategy that the U.S. government has used for the past 
decade or so of trying to say that this is a conflict between so-called democracy and authoritarianism. Now, Taiwan, which is part of China, was governed for decades by a brutal fascistic dictatorship under Chiang Kai-shek. And the US government strongly, deeply to its core supported that fascistic dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek for decades. It was not in any way a bourgeois democracy. Now it has a bourgeois democracy, and we all know how limited the actual democracy is because Taiwan's bourgeois democracy is a democracy in the sense of other so-called bourgeois democracies in which rich people can you know, buy elections, or as Lenin famously said, it's same as in ancient Greece, democracy for the slave owners. But the reality is that now this narrative that's being used to try to support separatism in Taiwan is that Taiwan is a so-called democratic bulwark. Well, if it's a democratic bulwark, then how is it also a weapons depot? Which one is it? And the reality is we all know that it's actually a weapons depot. It's not about democracy. It's about advancing US imperial interests directly in China's territory. And you mentioned Hawaii, Brian. I mean, I think a better example might be something like Florida. I mean, Hawaii, there's a genuine legitimate indigenous independence movement in Hawaii. And Hawaii was colonized by the United States in the way that Taiwan was not colonized by China. Hawaii only became formally a state in 1959 after being colonized by the United States. Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. It's not even a state. And we now see that two weeks after a brutal hurricane, there are still hundreds of thousands of people in Puerto Rico who are technically U.S. citizens who don't have electricity. So, I mean, those aren't good comparisons to Taiwan. A good comparison is Florida. Florida is obviously part of the United States. Everyone recognizes that. They have similar populations, around 20 million people. They have similar kind of positions in the geopolitics of the country. Imagine if China were supporting separatist forces in Florida to become an independent country. And imagine China were selling billions of dollars of weapons to Florida and hope to make a military base in Florida. What would the response of the United States be? Let's not forget, Brian, this is not just empty you know, speculation here. There is a historical precedent of the United States for decades having an active military base on the island of Taiwan during the first Cold War. So after the, the victory of the communists in the Chinese Civil War in 1949, people probably know that Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang forces, the nationalists, they fled to Taiwan, also known as Formosa, and they created this bastion backed by the United States to try to wage war against the People's Republic of China. And even though the Kuomintang still recognizes that Taiwan is part of China, People's Republic, well, they consider it the Republic, they also claim the mainland. But the reality is that at that same time, we know in the Taiwan Strait Crisis in 1958, that the US military leadership, the National Security Council, they wanted to nuke mainland China in alliance with the Kuomintang forces. And the US military had nuclear weapons stored on Taiwan in the 1950s. Throughout the 1950s, up until the 1970s, the US had nuclear weapons and thousands of US troops stationed on Taiwan prepared for a nuclear war with the People's Republic of China. And the US troops did not leave until the end of the 1970s after the series of agreements, the three communiques signed in which the US recognized the one China policy. So what, what is the US strategy here? It is not only to support separatism. It is not only to send billions of dollars of weapons to Taiwan. It is to turn Taiwan essentially into a proxy in a kind of neo-colony with thousands of US troops and nuclear weapons. And we still see today, 
World War II ended in 1945. The Korean War never ended. The U.S. has 28,000 troops in Korea, in South Korea. And in Japan, the U.S. still has tens of thousands of troops in Japan who have been there since 1945. So that is what the U.S. strategy is for Taiwan as well. Indeed. Yes, the U.S. has 11 military bases in Japan, in Okinawa. The people in Japan, the local people, are constantly rising up against the problems caused by the U.S. military occupation of their country. And again, that was 1945 when it started. We're in 2022. So you are absolutely right. And the U.S. military forces are actually all over the countries that they occupied at the end of World War II, including Germany. Germany is occupied by U.S. military forces. Ben, I want to go back to your article as we start to move towards the finish line here. Your article, Using Congressional Research Service, the U.S. government's own statistics, the Congressional Research Agency's own statistics, documents almost 500 military interventions since 1798. Now, the U.S. becomes an independent country, in essence, in 1783. And then in 1787, there was the U.S. Constitution was passed in secret. The U.S. federal government is formed. I want to walk through some of this history because the kinds of military interventions actually change quite a bit. The U.S. between 1783 or 1787 and, say, 1898, it's basically still going to war. Obviously, the U.S. stole half of Mexico. That was in the war in, in the 1840s. It took half of Mexico. There's many other military interventions that happen. But the U.S. capitalist class is really focused on going to war against the original inhabitants of North America, meaning the indigenous people. I mean, I'm looking at and reading this book, American Holocaust, The Conquest of the New World by David Stenard. It documents the genocide that was committed all over all the Americas, South, Central, and North America. But U.S. capitalism in the pre-monopoly capitalist phase, it's on the march. It's not like it's not intervening and going to war, but it's going to war against the people who occupied this land, the land of North America, for tens of thousands of years. And basically, the wars are designed to steal their land. And if it required the decimation and genocide of the people who lived here, so be it. And so it was. But then... In 1898, after Europe has already been on a colonial path and China's in a state of semi-colonization, India's been colonized, most of Latin America's been colonized by the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1902, almost all of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia, all colonized. So the U.S. gets into the colonial race kind of late in the game because it's busy colonizing or destroying the indigenous inhabitants in North America to secure the U.S. landmass or what is now the U.S. landmass for capitalism. But then in 1898, it goes to war and it seizes Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and the U.S. is off to the races starting then. And so there's this new era of military interventions outside of the mainland of North America. Then World War II happens, and after the end of World War II, all of those colonial empires that I mentioned, 
They're basically in ruins, but the U.S. puts the pieces back together of the world capitalist system. And now the U.S. is going to war against all of the countries or peoples or movements that want to become independent. That's the era of decolonization, where the people are fighting national liberation movements in the so-called third world and getting the assistance of the socialist camp, and in some cases, many cases, being led by communists. So this is a third chapter of U.S. military wars. That's the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam. As you mentioned, it's not called a war, but basically the war against the people of Congo, the, the intervention against the people of Guatemala when they dared to nationalize the United Fruit Company. You know, so there's that era between 1945 and 1991, which is called the Cold War. We call it the era of global class war, where the people fighting for national liberation and socialism or are in alliance with each other, they're the targets of the U.S. war drive. And then the socialist camp is destroyed. And instead of it becoming an era of peace, since America's enemies have been vanquished, a new era, a fourth era, again, of military intervention, and it's even of a greater number. There's an exponential increase. So you can see over this long trajectory of U.S. history, at least four distinct periods where the U.S. is at war first against the indigenous inhabitants of North America, and then it goes and tries to capture colonies and compete with European colonialism. Then after World War II, it's the global class war or so-called Cold War, and now this fourth era since 1991. The thing that's remarkable through these four very distinct phases in U.S. history is the fact that the military element of it never stops. It's always dominant. I mean, and I think this is really important to understand the politics and the culture of the United States. This reliance on perpetual endless violence and war is as American as apple pie, so to speak. Again, I think that, you know, the Congressional Research Service has provided the documentation, but it wasn't a big story in the mainstream media. I mean, people can go to your website, multipolarista.com, which is a great website and people should go there. But that wasn't reported in the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, and so on. Ben, as we move towards the finish line, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, Brian, you, you kind of obliquely referenced this famous quote from H. Rap Brown, who said, violence is as American as cherry pie. And that's absolutely right. We see that it's so integral to the external empire, but also the internal empire. And fortunately, this is something that people are becoming more and more cognizant of, that the United States was founded on settler colonialism and genocide of the indigenous nations. And I should point out that in this report that I did, looking at the data from the Congressional Research Service, they emphasized two times in their report, they stressed that they're only considering external military interventions they don't consider the deployment of military forces against indigenous peoples inside the current borders of the United States. So in many ways, these statistics are also extremely conservative because they don't consider the massive westward expansion and the role of the military in ethnically cleansing indigenous nations. And of course, another point that I think we should keep in mind is that we have this idea now of the United States as this contiguous country that goes from the Atlantic to the Pacific, right? But the reality is that the process of westward expansion and settler colonialism was 
coexistent with also a process of Southern imperial expansion, taking Mexico and occupying huge parts of Latin America. And the fact that the U.S. couldn't take more of Mexico is ultimately what prevented it from colonizing even more parts of what are now Latin America. And then also the inter-imperialist rivalry between British colonialism and French colonialism, which gave birth to Canada and the differences there. The reality is that you know, this westward expansion and then expansion to places like Hawaii. I mentioned Hawaii didn't become a U.S. state until 1959. We should keep in mind that the idea of the United States as this, you know, sea to shining sea, contiguous nation with 50 states is a very recent political development. And it's a product of colonialism. And so when we see that the U.S. ruling class, when it finished that process of colonial land consolidation from sea to shining sea, then it began expanding its empire internationally. So these processes are inextricably linked. And why is that? It's because the capitalist class, it needs to externalize that super exploitation in order to extract wealth. So the US capitalist class, it first used wealth of slave labor, chattel slavery of Africans, you know, millions of Africans who were enslaved, not because simply, I mean, racism was a huge element of it, but racism was the justification for the economic exploitation of African labor. White supremacy was created by the colonialists to justify their enslavement and exploitation of human beings. And similarly, when slavery was abolished, you had Jim Crow in a kind of new form of wage slavery, but then you also had the continuous expansion and basically infinite land that the U.S. capitalist class could use. And that infinite land came from the genocide and ethnic cleansing of indigenous nations. When Manifest Destiny was completed and the U.S. was this contiguous country from sea to shining sea, the capitalist class needs to find new forms of super exploitation and new labor to exploit and new resources to extract, and that can do that through imperialism abroad. So capitalism has always been predicated on what you call primitive accumulation. And we can't understand how the capitalist class gets its wealth without that primitive accumulation. In the case of the British empire and the British capitalist class, it was enclosure of land, pushing peasants off their land and colonialism in Ireland and then colonialism across you know, one quarter of the planet. In the case of capitalist accumulation in the United States, primitive accumulation, it was through colonialist expansion and now imperialism today. So capitalism is inextricably tied to imperialism and it is a free lunch, except that actual free lunch for Wall Street, for the capitalists is based on slavery and ethnic cleansing and genocide and war and exploitation. It's not so free for the people on the receiving end of the free lunch. But I, I think we just really need to keep in mind how those historical processes are directly tied together and how it's not a coincidence that after the U.S. finished this process of manifest destiny and settler colonialism, the number of foreign military interventions abroad skyrocketed because it's part of the same process of capitalist extraction and accumulation. Indeed, as Karl Marx said, capitalism as an economic order came into existence with blood and dirt dripping from every pore. Again, the form of government has shifted. And as we talked about earlier, Ben, because public opinion matters in the modern era, the sensibilities about public opinion have reshaped the capitalist narrative so that 
its endless war drive, which we have now seen has gone on for centuries, is given a new set of public rationales, but it's still the same capitalist, economic-driven war drive. And for people who believe and want peace, we have to be against war, but not just against war. War is not simply the absence of peace. War is also the absence of justice, and capitalism is a system premised on injustice. Ben Norton, thank you so much for joining us. Again, we encourage all of our audience to go to multipolarista.com to read this article and your other writings. Ben Norton, thanks so much. Thanks to you and the entire team at Breakthrough News. You all doing amazing work. It's always a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.